0: It's Dan. We're taking a break this month from releasing new episodes as we prep stories for this fall and get a little R&R, but there's a lot of good healthcare journalism being produced. So in each of the next four weeks, we'll feature a podcast that we admire and we think you'll enjoy. Today, a story about hospital closures by our friends over at The Pulse, a podcast hosted by Mike and Scott at WHYY in Philadelphia. They tell stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. Alan Yu and Nina Feldman report that in Philly, a crisis of maternity ward closures sparked a surprising alliance and some unexpected outcomes.
1: It was 2009, and Julie Crystal was hanging on by a thread. She'd been a midwife for 20 years, and she'd never seen so many patients coming into the labor and delivery unit as she had recently.
2: What midwives like to do is support women in labor and, you know, do back rubs and really pay a lot of close attention to people as they're going through the process of having their baby. And all of a sudden, we couldn't do that so much anymore because we were just running from room to room, you know, making sure that the baby wasn't about to come out. And um, and so we just were taking care of a lot more people at once.
1: It was more than just not being able to give back rubs. There weren't enough rooms. Women were delivering on stretchers in the hallway. It felt like things were on the verge of collapse.
2: It was stressful. It was scary. And so then the experience that women were having was just crappier because the staff was so stressed.
1: The onslaught of patients wasn't part of some sudden baby boom. The hospital where Julie worked at the time was one of a few that still delivered babies in Philadelphia. Thirteen maternity wards had closed over the course of the last decade. And so the ones that stayed open were feeling the heat.
2: And that's what I really remember is like, oh, my gosh, things are relatively safe, but it's because we're killing ourselves here to keep it that way.
1: This pace didn't feel sustainable and the closures didn't make sense. There were plenty of patients who needed care. So what happened to all the other maternity wards? Why had they all
3: shut down? There is certainly no shortage of patients. But despite the demand, delivering babies is a money losing business. That's true for a few reasons. First insurance reimbursement rates for women's health care is just less than it is for other procedures here is Arnold Cohen an obstetrician and gynecologist he ran the maternity ward at Einstein Medical Center one of the six hospitals that stayed open
2: for obstetrical care we you know we provide essentially nine months worth of care um, and get reimbursed Uh, less than, let's say, somebody gets for a uh, colonoscopy sometimes.
3: Those rates are even lower when public health insurance is paying the bill. That's why hospitals are always trying to get enough patients on private insurance to subsidize the ones on Medicaid and Medicare. People in the healthcare business call that a good payer mix. Hospitals with a lot of patients on Medicaid spend more on each delivery than they get back.
2: The average loss per delivery was about $2,000 per delivery. Uh, And that made it economically unsound for many hospitals to uh, provide
4: obstetrical services.
3: Then there's the other part of the equation, the cost. Delivering babies is expensive, and it might not be for the reasons you would think. It's not any special equipment or medication you need to have on hand. It's the cost of risk. Liability insurance for doctors, especially ones delivering babies, is expensive. During the big wave of maternity ward closures, Owen Montgomery was head of OBGYN at Hahnemann Hospital, another of the remaining six.
4: For each of my faculty members, it was $160,000 a year to provide liability insurance. I paid more per year for liability protection for each faculty that I paid each faculty in salary.
3: In the early 2000s, medical malpractice insurance rates went up drastically in Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia was even more expensive. If a jury found a doctor negligent in a delivery, the payouts were just enormous. So the hospitals had to have a lot of money in the bank in case that happened. High malpractice rates and low reimbursements led a lot of hospitals in Philadelphia to do the math and make a rational business decision that with the high costs and low revenue, it did not make sense to keep delivering babies. And so maternity wards closed across the city, one after the other. With each
1: closure, new patients flooded the remaining wards. People had to wait for rooms, they gave birth in triage rooms or even hallways. As Julie Crystal, the midwife, rushed from one person to the next, she was really worried about the kind of care she could
2: provide. We have to make a lot of quick decisions. So we have a lot of little boxes in our heads, which are diagnoses. And if someone says, I have pain when I pee and there's blood in my pee, you know, bing, urinary tract infection like lights up in my brain in a little box. But if someone comes in and they have a whole collection of weird symptoms that don't light up any of my little diagnostic boxes, then my tendency, unless I work really hard, is to say, oh, you know, that doesn't make any sense. So you must be crazy. You know, you're not fitting my box. So something's wrong with you rather than, oh, I need to maybe look for another box, or maybe it's a combination of two boxes.
1: Julie worried that if her colleagues were taking too many of these shortcuts, the patients would suffer. And research shows that when healthcare providers don't have enough time to spend with each patient, it can lead to complications. In the first few years after most of the maternity wards closed, care did get worse. Things were looking bad. After steadily declining for years, the rate of infant mortality in Philly started to creep up as hospital maternity wards closed. In the first few years after the surge of closing wards, the chances of a newborn dying went up by 50%, compared to counties that didn't have so many closures. Julie was worried. She saw a crisis coming and was concerned that more maternity units could close as a result. Could hers be next? There was one major factor preventing that from happening. Julie worked at a teaching hospital. In fact, all the remaining maternity wards were part of teaching hospitals. That meant they had medical residents to help deliver the babies, and their salaries were paid for in part by the federal government. It also meant they had a reason to stay open outside of breaking even, teaching people how to deliver babies. Here's OBGYN Owen Montgomery again.
4: The basic equation was if you were committed to education, if you're educating the next generation of healthcare providers, then the university or the medical school was was willing to lose money providing obstetrical care.
1: Still, even these big, university-backed medical centers were starting to buckle under the pressure. So the remaining hospitals did something they'd never done before. They worked as a team. Cooperation may sound like it was a natural solution, but it's actually rare. Usually hospitals compete with each other. Remember that payer mix? If a hospital administrator were purely thinking about finances and nothing else, they would want as few patients on Medicaid or Medicare as possible. Just don't bring in the same revenue. Jack Ludmier was Julie's boss. He was one of the heads of obstetrics at the time.
3: I don't want to mention any names in particular. There were some hospitals that decided, you know, I don't want to bring uh, vulnerable patients from this area of the city But
1: in this new situation, they couldn't afford to think about what type of insurance a patient had. The main concern was space. If one maternity ward was overwhelmed, things could get even worse. Doctors might make more mistakes. Outcomes could decline. And the ward might close. That would risk further overwhelming the whole system. So the heads of each department made a sort of pact that they would support each other and at times work outside their financial interests to prevent anyone from closing.
5: We were able to sit together, no longer on a spirit of competition, but on a
4: spirit of collaboration.
1: The directors started sharing strategies for how to manage high-risk pregnancies, which many of the hospitals hadn't really had to deal with so much before. They kept tabs on how many patients there were at each hospital and transferred people if one unit was running out of space. Often, that meant giving up patients who they would have wanted to care for otherwise. They would have brought in revenue. Some hospitals expanded to make more room. They all started using a new, more efficient staffing model, where one person rotated onto the labor and delivery floor at all times, instead of assigning each patient her own doctor, who
3: had to be on call all the time. And it worked. The chances of infants dying went back down to where it was before the wave of closures. Here's Arnold Cohen again.
2: And if you were to ask me, do I think it was a good thing that these obstetrical units closed or a bad thing? I would tell you that it was a good thing.
3: It may sound counterintuitive, but yes, by some measures, the remaining hospitals ended up with better service as a result of the crucible of the closing maternity wards. The hospital leaders say this is because the ones that closed were generally smaller hospitals, serving the communities directly surrounding them. While that might have been convenient, many of those hospitals were not as up to date on the latest research or best practices, whereas the teaching hospitals had to keep up with the newest evidence. Plus, the remaining hospitals just had more experience. Yes, they had to take on more births, but that also meant they had more chances to get better. And last, the smaller hospitals did not have the infrastructure to deal with high-risk pregnancies in case something really bad happened. The teaching hospitals are part of large hospital systems with other kinds of specialty care. Asta Mater is an OBGYN with the City of Philadelphia who reviews maternal health outcomes across the city.
2: Hemorrhage deaths, which is what we see more often, internationally and is a sort of third leading cause of death um, nationally as well, is almost minimal in Philadelphia. And, you know, I do think that that's because of the fact that the remaining delivery hospitals all are well-equipped to, to manage these kinds of high-risk conditions.
0: This promising but fragile new alliance faces a big test after the break, when we return with more from The Pulse. Welcome back. This week on Tradeoffs, we're rerunning a report from our friends at The Pulse, looking at a rash of maternity ward closures in Philadelphia and the unexpected ways local hospitals have weathered the storm. Again, here are Pulse reporters Alan Yu and Nina Feldman.
3: That's not to say things were perfect in Philadelphia. The hospitals that had closed served people in their direct neighborhood. Sometimes people could even walk there. When they closed, those patients would have to call an ambulance or a taxi or get a ride when it came time to deliver. It might have been inconvenient or expensive, though generally they got there to give birth. But people need more than just a place to have their babies. There are nine months of pregnancy that bring huge health changes, especially if someone has other health risks. It's really important for doctors to know early in the pregnancy when people have chronic conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure so they can get them on the right medications. When many of the neighborhood hospitals disappeared, so did the prenatal care they provided. The percentage of births where the pregnant people received no prenatal care has climbed in Philly since 2000. Still, the alliance held, warding off the worst. The disaster everyone had been waiting for just never happened. Not for a decade, not until the summer of 2019.
1: In the summer of 2019, Sean Matson was just finishing up her OBGYN residency at Hahnemann Hospital, one of the remaining maternity wards. The hospital had been operating right downtown Philadelphia since before the Civil War. Since the 90s, it had been bought and sold by a handful of operators. Its latest one was a California investment banker who ran the hospital for profit. Hahnemann treated some of the city's poorest, sickest patients. And that's who came into the labor and delivery floor, too. It made for a fast-paced, intense environment where the staff all had to work as a team. It was like being in the trenches, Sean said. They were used to doing more with less.
5: Where you might not have like the gooseneck lamp that you need to like really truly do a speculum exam so you have like a headlamp on your head kind of thing. Like you're doing cave diving or whatever. Kind of like MacGyvering some sort of situation to
1: make it work. She says they were often short-staffed and things were less than perfect. The stretcher, maybe that's broken. You know, things things sort of,
5: to that extent, paint peeling off the wall.
1: But by that summer, the usual supply shortages seemed more dire.
5: No linens in the OR. Things were just not always readily available, just like basic supplies.
1: Even with the writing on the wall, Sean and her colleagues couldn't believe the hospital would close. Too many people depended on it. Owen, the chair of Sean's department, actually reassured them that their jobs would be safe. The city couldn't let this happen. But then
4: it did. We begin at four o'clock with the plan to close Hahnemann at the end of this summer.
2: And Hahnemann University continued to eliminate services today by closing its emergency
1: department.
4: Hahnemann's owner says the business can't continue to sustain millions of dollars in
5: losses every month. The hospital's owner,
1: Joel Friedman, said he tried his best to keep Hahnemann open, but there was simply no saving it. It collapsed under its own costs. And he's a private business owner. He didn't have to ask anyone's permission to cut his losses and walk away. In June of 2019, Friedman declared bankruptcy. The closure sparked an outcry across the city. Sean took to the streets to protest. Where would her patients go? 800 pregnant patients who now had to find someplace else to deliver. Sean was joined by Laniece Coleman, the head midwife at Hahnemann. The ground felt shaky beneath them.
6: Things happened very quickly. Um, Felt very unsafe to many of us. Um, Not just healthcare providers, but patients also.
1: It felt like all the trust she had worked to build with her patients over the years had just evaporated into thin air.
6: People had generations of families have their babies at Hahnemann Hospital. It's what you know, you know, it's a tradition in your family.
1: There was so much to figure out.
6: Do we have access to a person's records? You know, they're very important um, information in prenatal records um, that can have impact um, plans for delivery and postpartum care. Um, And to have to scramble at the very last minute and figure out how to make that system work um, felt very unsafe.
1: Eventually, Another hospital hired Sean and Laniece and Owen and most of Hahnemann's labor and delivery staff and started building out all the systems that Hahnemann had developed for high-risk pregnancies. They beefed up their interpretation services to communicate with the influx of immigrant patients. They trained their staff to anticipate different cultural expectations around giving birth.
6: A lot of our Southeast Asian patients, you know, temperature is very important. So um, you know, when you're laboring and um, someone asks you in it for a glass of water, I, I typically know it's they're going to want a glass of warm water, whereas most people would assume you would want a glass of cold water.
1: But Sean and Lenise say it's still common for people to show up without medical records, having gotten prenatal care somewhere else, or not at all. And Sean says her patients still bring up Hanuman, unprompted, all the time, now two years later. There was one woman
5: I remember a couple months ago and she basically started crying in my office at just talking about, how, you know, she's like had her kidney doctor there, her heart doctor. She had all her babies there. Her grandkids were born there. And it was like like the loss of something really significant in her in her life.
1: The number of delivery hospitals in Philadelphia, a city where around 50 people give birth each day, is now down to five. The pact between hospitals had lost one member. So was that the tipping point? Would the system
3: be able to absorb the hundreds of births performed at Hahnemann each year? In some ways, the remaining five were prepared for another closure because they'd handled it before. The infrastructure was there. But on the other hand, it was still a shock. And it's unclear how much more the system can bend before it breaks. Think about timing. Hahnemann closed just before the pandemic hit. Changing the way everyone got their healthcare. So it's hard to measure the impact of Hahnemann's closure alone because the pandemic changed so much about delivery patterns. But if the pandemic has taught us anything about the business of healthcare, it's that hospitals are vulnerable to financial pressures. Across the country, sales and closures loom. In Philadelphia, two of the giant teaching hospitals that remain are about to merge. Those involved say it's unlikely a maternity ward will be lost in the process, but it has happened before. Until now, the city has managed to keep babies safe as a result of goodwill, from a handful of people who liked each other well enough to work together, like Owen and Arnold and Jack, dedicated leaders who put aside their normal business interests for the good of the city. But should something as important as delivering babies run on goodwill alone? Owen Montgomery says it doesn't have to.
4: The state has to decide or the federal government has to decide that that the care of you know women delivering the the babies that have turned into the citizens of our you know the next citizens of the of, of our country that their care is worth providing at a level which allows the care providers to stay in business. so you know some of it's just dollars and cents.
3: As it stands, it's left up to the individual hospitals. And at any minute, they could change their mind.
0: Special thanks to our friends over at The Pulse. It's a great show, and it's worth subscribing. Search for The Pulse wherever you get your podcasts. Alan Yu and Nina Feldman reported this story as part of the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism's 2020 Data Fellowship. I'm Dan Gorenstein. And this is Trade-Offs.
7: If you enjoyed today's episode of Trade-Offs, leave us a rating on whichever app you use. It helps others to find us. You can also keep in touch with us between episodes by following us on Twitter at Trade-OffsPod or sign up for our newsletter at Tradeoffs.org. You can click on the big orange button at the top of the page. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Mary Franklin Harvin, Chief of Strategy and Operations Jessica Silverman, Operations Assistant Jamie Song, Sound Designer Andrew Perella, and Senior Producer Leslie Walker. The Trade-Offs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman. Additional thanks to Mike and Scott and Charlie Kyer for this week's episode. Trade-Offs is supported in part by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, West Health, the California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders.